All right. Yay, this is working. Very good. You can give me a reference. Very good. All right, well, we'll begin with a, with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, what I'm intending for this to be is, is really more of a reflection for all of us. Uh, as we approach the end of the liturgical year and in a time in our world and even in the secular world when the whole world, it seems, is focused on this changing of seasons, right? Um, And sometimes there might appear to be a little bit of, uh, or it, it might appear that we're at odds with the rest of the world who in a lot of ways are already celebrating Christmas and Thanksgiving isn't even here yet. And meanwhile, we're still preparing, right? And we haven't even begun the season of preparing, which is Advent. So we're, we're preparing to prepare <laughs> for the coming of Christmas. And we're already seeing Christmas trees and wreaths and holiday lights and all kinds of things around. But, but it's good that the world still at this time is, is marking this changing of seasons. We have the change of the, the natural seasons as we leave summer behind and progress into fall and start to advance into winter. Um, we have the, we're entering into, you know, quote unquote, the holiday season with Halloween behind us. Thanksgiving is coming up and then we, we go into what the world considers to be the Christmas season. We know that there's Advent to come yet. But even within the church, we're in a time of transition in the liturgical year. We only have one more Sunday left when we're going to be in green, right? We know this. That tomorrow will be the last Sunday you'll see Father in green for a while because the Sunday after that is the Solemnity of Christ the King, which is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. And then the Sunday after that, we begin a new liturgical year with, with Advent. And uh, if you pay attention, and this is what made me want to focus on this topic today, if you pay attention to the readings, the, the Mass readings, not only at Sunday Mass, but even and especially during daily Mass during the week, um, we're already getting into readings that are preparing us to look ahead for that day when time will end, that day when there will be no more tomorrows and time itself will come to an end, even before we formally get into Advent. As the liturgical year comes to an end, the church is asking us to look ahead for when all of time will come to an end. And that's actually where Advent begins, because we don't really start anticipating the the birth of the Christ child historically in time until we get to the last half of Advent. The first half of Advent has us anticipating the coming of Christ not in his incarnation uh, 2,000 years ago, but in his glory at the end of time. So we both begin and end our liturgical year by looking forward to the end of time. And so I wanted to, to start this reflection by just taking a moment and thinking about time. What, what is time? Uh, and I want to begin with a reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which I'm sure is familiar to a, to a lot of you, but we'll, we'll begin with this reading. And this is starting in verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep 
and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind. And I want to end there with that first half of, of verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time, but also he has put eternity into man's mind. Right? Because this is the reality of us, isn't it? As, as human beings, we are creatures that exist in time. We are creatures that experience the passing of time, but yet God has put eternity into our minds. We can't help but think of those things that are eternal and be concerned with those things that are eternal, right? And, and this is what all of the, the readings that we've been getting lately in the daily mass readings and in what our Sunday readings are going to be pointing more and more towards is that which is eternal to remind us that everything that's within time is passing away and our true focus should be on what is going to remain, what truly is eternal, so, but everything proceeding up to that verse in Ecclesiastes is just reminding us that, you know, for everything there is a season, right? For everything there is a purpose. There is a time for every purpose. And so if there is a time for every purpose, then it's fair for us to also ask, what is the purpose of time? If there is a time for every purpose, what is the purpose of time? And, you know... That's a fair question to ask because time is something that is made by God. Time is, in a sense, a creature. It's part of creation. It's an aspect of creation, right? God is the author of time. So like everything else that God created, it has a purpose because God has a purpose for everything that he creates, including you and I, right? So what is the purpose of, of time? And when we ask that question, when we reflect on what is the purpose of time, what we're really asking, what we're really interested in, is what's the purpose of our time, right? Because we, we become aware at a certain point in our lives that our time is rather limited. <laughs> it is rather limited. Why? Why do we have just this span of time allotted to us and no more? What's the purpose of our time? Why did God create us to exist in time? Why didn't he create us to exist with him in eternity to, to begin with? I mean, that's our goal. That's our hope. But why this passage through time first? What's the purpose? And I think a related question to what is the purpose of our time is, is what is our purpose, right? Take a step back from that. What is our purpose, period? And do you remember the answer from the old Baltimore Catechism? You know, what is the purpose of man, right? Is to know, love, and serve God in this life so that we can be with him forever, you know, in the next. So we can be happy with him forever in the next, right? Um, 
another way of saying that same thing is that the purpose of our time on earth, right, if it's to learn, to know, to love, and to serve God, another way of saying that is the purpose of our time here on earth is for us to learn how to be holy. Because that's what it is to know, love, and serve God, is to be holy. So the purpose of our time is for us to learn how to be holy. And to learn how to be holy takes time, I think. It takes time, right? Because there are certain lessons that we need to learn in holiness that can only be learned during certain times in our life. And and here's what I'm getting at. Throughout our lives, we all experience times of great joy and happiness. We experience times of great sorrow and suffering. And we experience times of kind of just, I don't know, fair to Midland, (laughs) where where not a lot really seems to happen. And I think one of the great spiritual struggles of, of those times that people struggle with is spiritual dryness. Right? And a lot of times in those times in our life, it can, be, it can feel like we're just kind of going through the motion. There's not a lot going on to, to motivate us or to, there's no crisis that we're having to deal with or confront. We're just kind of moving along and, and we can fall into a, a spiritual rut in that time and feel spiritually dry. But I think that there are lessons for us in all of those moments in our lives that are calling us to different aspects of our relationship with God. And and there are lessons that really can only be learned in times of great joy or in times of great sorrow or in these times when we're kind of just passing along, right? Um, There's a book that I'll recommend to you um, if you ever want to explore this concept a little bit more. It's it's an older book that was written by Peter Kreeft. He's a a Catholic philosopher and an author, and he's written a lot of books. Um, This is one of his earlier ones. I think he wrote it in the 70s or 80s, but it's called Three Philosophies of Life. And he looks at three books from the Old Testament. Um, He looks at uh, um, the book of Job. He looks at the book of Ecclesiastes, which I just read from, and he looks at the Song of Songs. And so his three philosophies of life, uh, he looks at them through these three lenses, and Job provides us the lens that life is suffering. Right? And Ecclesiastes provides us the lens that life is vanity. Um, but the Song of Songs provides for us the lens that life is love. You know? And he draws uh, lessons for us from from each of these three books. But I think, and this is my premise in this talk, that there are lessons for us to learn from all of these different aspects of our lives that we naturally experience um, just in, in our time as we live, right? But these times, these different periods in our life, don't come for us at regular intervals, Right? They, they, they catch us by surprise sometimes, and we never really know how long they might, they might last. So someone may spend a great deal of their life, most of their life, in a time of like spiritual dryness, where nothing much really seems to be happening with them, um, rarely experiencing the heights of joy or the depths of sorrow. Um, and some may live lives of seeming, seemingly perpetual sorrow and suffering, only briefly interspersed by periods of, of joy, right? Um, and others may experience joy for most of their life. God bless them, right? But then have that happiness extinguished by some kind of deep and profound moment of suffering. Um, and and we, we each will pass through these stages in our lives differently, right? It doesn't really occur with, with regularity. 
when we look at the liturgical cycle of the church, one of the things that it can do for us is to give us an opportunity liturgically to experience the depth and the breadth of these range of experiences in the course of a single year. If we're paying attention and and kind of living our lives in harmony with the liturgical cycle of the church, we have seasons of feasting, we have seasons of fasting, right? The church gives us times when we're asked to to join in the suffering of, of Christ or suffering in the mem- other members of the church and times that we rejoice with him and rejoice with the church, right? And this cycle is played out not just over the course of the liturgical year, but it's really played out over the course of every week in the church, right? And it gives us as Christians opportunities to grow in grace and opportunities to, to learn these lessons of holiness in our life. Um, and, and before I go any farther and talk about this, the liturgical cycle a little bit, um, I want to talk about liturgy just kind of in general. I think most of us here are familiar with the origin of that word liturgy as meaning um, public work or the work of the people, right? It's the, the work of the people of God. It's not something that we do as individuals, right? As an individual Christian, I want to worship God my own way, right? Liturgy is, is our corporate worship. It's how we worship God and enter into that experience as a member of Christ's body, you know, coming together as one in and through Christ. So each of us has a, has a serious obligation to participate in the liturgy, especially on Sundays. But that all being said, what's the relationship then between liturgy and time? Liturgy and time. And I don't just mean the cycle of liturgical time. I don't mean like Advent and Christmas and Easter and Lent and all of that, right? But liturgy itself and time. And in a very real way, in a very meaningful way spiritually, liturgy is something that takes us, that invites us outside of time and, and, and puts us in touch with eternity. Every time we, we celebrate a liturgy, we participate in a liturgy, we should think of it as something that is calling us outside of time and putting us in touch with eternity. And, and this is something that uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI actually talks about um, in uh, a book that he wrote called The Spirit of the Liturgy. He talks about three different um, uh, aspects of time that are included whenever we do liturgy. Right? Um, there's you know, what we experience most directly would be what he considers the middle level, the middle level, which is just the event of the liturgy as we experience it. You know, you go to mass, you, you, you hear the readings, you say the prayers, you experience that worship. That's the middle level of the experience of the liturgy as we experience it here in the present, right? But then what he calls the first level or the foundational level of the liturgy are those events in the past that that liturgy commemorates, right? Chiefly, what he's talking about is the Paschal mystery, right? Um, but you know, we can think about this too when we come up uh, when, like, for our Christmas liturgy, for example, right? It's commemorating the nativity, right? Or when we celebrate feast days of particular saints or things, right? We're, we're, there, we're looking back in the past to events that have already happened. That's the kind of the first level, the foundational level that, that Pope Benedict talks about, right? Um, but then there's the third level, 
which looks to the future. We know that Christ's passion and his death and his resurrection inaugurated a new era of grace for us and opened the door for us to be reconciled to God. And we begin that life now. We can live in union with God in this life now, but we also know that we're still a work in progress. Right? We've been redeemed, but we have not yet been perfected. Right? That act of perfection that sanctification, being made holy, again, it takes time. And we know that at the end of time, not only will those who have been reborn in Christ and, and died in his friendship be perfected in heaven, but the earth itself will be perfected. Creation will be renewed, right? We speak of a new heaven and a new earth. So we, we look forward to this future day of perfection because we know that we're not yet experiencing it fully. We know that we've been redeemed, and so we're experiencing it partly, but it's not yet fully been achieved. So, so even though it's something we experience in the present, it's a future that we still hope for, right? So we're looking ahead, and that third level of the liturgy reaches forward to that future fulfillment that we anticipate, right? That final coming of Christ, that general resurrection, that new heaven and new earth, right? But not just in a, gee, this is what we hope for one day, you know, sort of anticipation, right? Not, not that, but in a real sacramental way. We participate in that future perfection in the same way sacramentally that we participate in those events that we commemorate in the past, right? So when we, when we celebrate Mass in a real way, Christ's sacrifice on Calvary has been made present to us again, it's, it's, it doesn't just represent his sacrifice, it represents it, right? It makes it present to us. In the same way, his future coming in glory is made present to us as well, right? We're tapping into these, these eternal realities. So again, the liturgy is inviting us outside of time, and it's making, it, it's making us contemporary, contemporary meaning in that same time, sharing time with that final realization of history. So there's that forward-looking aspect to liturgy too. And that happens at every Mass. That happens at each and every Mass that you go to, right? This interconnection between the past and the present and the future is, that gives the Mass its, its eternal meaning, right? And here's a, a quote from Benedict XVI. He says, the immediate event, the liturgy, makes sense and has meaning for our lives only because it contains the other two dimensions, past, present, and future, interpenetrate and touch upon eternity. Past, present, and future, interpenetrate and touch upon eternity. And that happens at every Mass, right? Now, this connection between time and eternity is also played out over the course of every year, Right? And indeed, like I said, every week in the life of the church. Um, the Second Vatican Council in Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, which is the constitution on the sacred liturgy, says that the liturgy opens up to the faithful the riches of the Lord's powers and merits so that these are in some way made present at all times. It's made present to us at all times. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes says, what now has already been, what is to be already is, God retrieves what has gone by. It's Ecclesiastes 3.15. Right? So 
I want to look back at the the Old Testament and the look at how they how the how our our Jewish forebears marked the passage of time. And if we look at how their their celebrations, their liturgical celebrations, we see that they had both annual cycles and they had weekly cycles. Okay? Whoops, excuse me. I thought that was on silent. My phone has a uh, bad habit of being on silent and then not being on silent anymore <laughs> simultaneously, which is usually why I, I try not to take it out of my pocket during Mass. Okay, it's back on silent again. Excuse me. All right, so in the Old Testament, they had, they had annual cycles and they had weekly cycles where they marked the time, right? So their weekly cycles centered around the observance of the Sabbath. That was like the, the hinge day for them, right? Their annual cycle centered around um, feasts that celebrated creation, right? The natural cycles of the year, sowing and harvesting, that sort of thing, the changing of the seasons. And they also had an annual cycle that, um, that centered around remembrances of God's action in history. So these would be feasts like Passover, right? Hanukkah, things like that, that were com- annual commemorations of past events. And Christianity continues that. We, we also share in that. We have our weekly cycles and we have our annual cycles. So our weekly cycle for us is centered around not the Sabbath, not Saturday, but the Lord's Day. Right? Because for us, the holiest day of the week is no longer the seventh day, which would be the Sabbath, but Sunday, which is the eighth day. Or the first day, depending on how you look at it, right? Um, uh, the Second Vatican Council uh, calls the Lord's Day the original feast day and the foundation and kernel of the entire liturgical year. Uh, Sunday, of course, is a day that Christ rose from the dead. Um, and so on every Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. And that's why we are obligated as Catholics to attend Mass on Sunday, even though it's good to attend Mass any day. You can go to Mass every day during the week if you want to, right? But you're only obligated to on a Sunday because of the importance that we place on Sunday in particular as when we commemorate Christ's resurrection in a very special and particular way. Um, And again, it's the first day of the week, and it was counted so even in the ancient world. That's not something that we as Christians came up with, Sunday being the first day of the week. It was considered the first day of the week in the ancient world. And that's significant that Jesus was resurrected on the first day because it's inaugurating a new stage of creation. And that newness is why a lot of the church fathers also considered Sunday to be the eighth day. Right? Because, of course, the seven days of the week come from the seven days of creation that we read about in Genesis. And um, interesting fact, you know, after every day of creation, God looks at what he says, what he made, rather, and he says, it is good, right? And then there's this little phrase that you'll see, you know, um, you know evening came, morning followed, the second day, right? Mm-hmm. Evening came, morning followed, the third day, and so on and so forth until you get to the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And then you know what you don't find in Genesis? At the end of the seventh day, there was no evening came, morning followed, right? So in a very real sense, everything that you read in the Old Testament after that takes place on the seventh day. 
right? Because we know that these days of creation weren't 24-hour periods on a clock, right? They're, they're more stages. And so everything that you read about in the Old Testament is really in the seventh day until you come to this new dawn with Christ. The coming of Christ is a new dawn that is shining upon creation. And this is why a lot of the church fathers look on Sunday as the eighth day. Because when we are baptized into Christ, we become already part of this new creation. And we now exist in the eighth day. That's why a lot of baptismal fonts are eight-sided. If you've ever noticed that, they're shaped, they're octagonal. Because when we're baptizing a new Christian, we're baptizing them into this eighth day of creation. Cool, right? Right? Yeah. So, so Sunday is, and, all, and this is another interesting thing, thinking about time. Sunday is still, of course, the first day of the week. But it's also the eighth day of the week. So Sunday kind of has this unique um, position on our weekly calendar of, of kind of being outside of time of being the first and the last, the alpha and the omega in terms of, of our experience of time, the days of the week, right? So that's our weekly cycle. Every single Sunday we celebrate this, and the whole week revolves and should revolve around Sunday. In our um, observances as Christian, everything that we do should revolve around Sunday. And I know that's not what a lot of people experience, especially with the, the youth that you're ministering to, right? It seems like our Sunday obligation is like an afterthought, and it gets kind of pushed in there whenever we can find time. But I suggest that we need to encourage people to not, find, not just find time to go to Mass on Sunday. That's a minimal effort, right? But change our perspective so that our weekly schedule of activities, the things that we're busy with, really are centered around this, this celebration of Sunday so that that then becomes the first thing you know, in our minds. And just as every Sunday of the week is a celebration of Christ's resurrection, every Friday during the week is a commemoration of his passion. Every Sunday is a little Easter. Every Friday should be a Good Friday, something of a Good Friday. And that's why the church, even today, in our liturgical, in our canon law, still considers Fridays, every Friday during the year, to be a day of penance. Were you aware of that? Every Friday is a day of penance. Now, we're no longer obligated to abstain from meat on Friday, right? Unless you're Nikki and you're vegetarian, then you abstain from meat every day. Um, the church, so the, the church no longer requires that of us, but the church still considers Friday to be a day of penance and asks us, you know, if we're not going to abstain from meat, um, which is the traditional practice, to do something on Friday to mark it as a day of penance. So maybe you're, you're going to give up dessert, or maybe you're going to give up coffee, or maybe you're going to do a charitable act, right? Maybe you're going to go and volunteer at that nursing home. Maybe you're going to um, spend some extra time in prayer on Fridays, right? The church gives us the freedom to, to choose what our Friday penance is going to be. But I think we've done a really bad job as a church in, in recent decades of reminding people that you should observe some kind of penance on Friday, we do get reminded every Lent because every Lent you don't have that option anymore. You have to give up meat. On uh, I mean, I tell my vegetarian friends, you have to pick something else to do. <laughs> you don't get off the hook just because you're vegetarian. But yeah, you're you're right, Sam. Every Lent, the we are, uh, and I think that that's useful because then it, it it also shows solidarity. It's something that all of us kind of 
do together um, for, for at least that time during Lent. But the rest of the year, you should observe Friday as a day of penance. And of course, you could still give up meat if you want to. But my point here is that it's part of that weekly cycle of time. Every Friday, we should suffer with Christ. And then every Sunday, we should rise with Christ and rejoice. Um, and, and that should be an ongoing part of the, our rhythm, the rhythm of our lives as, as Christians. And we have annual cycles too, right? And so just like every week, we remember Jesus' birth, burial, resurrection, culminating in, in our Sunday celebration together. Um, every year, we have a, a similar cycle. So just like the, the Jewish uh, uh, cycle of celebrations um, commemorated what God did for them in the past, right? Passover and Hanukkah and those sorts of things. We have our annual observations of the great events in the life of Christ, and the most important one is Easter, right? Um, so there's no, no coincidence that, that Jesus' celebration of the Last Supper was a Passover meal, that it was linked to this annual celebration of the Jewish people. Um, the death and the resurrection of Christ corresponds to the sacrificial lamb that the Jewish people offered as part of their liberation from slavery in, in Egypt. And so Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb that is offered for us to liberate us from our slavery to sin. Um, and I know that we're coming up on Advent and Christmas, not on Easter and, and, and Lent, but everything is connected, right? Everything is connected. Um, and so I just wanted to point out some interesting connections um, having to do with, again, this idea of time and God being the author of time. So Easter is one of those feasts that doesn't always happen at the same time, does it? It always moves around, and that's kind of weird. We don't do that with a lot. Like Christmas is December 25th. Period, right? Mm -hmm. But Easter, who, who knows when Easter is going to be? You've got to buy a calendar. You've got to look. <laughs> is it April 21st this year, right? So the reason why Easter moves around has to do with the fact that, okay, we want to celebrate Easter as close as possible to the Jewish Passover to show its connection with the Jewish Passover. But we also want to celebrate Easter on a Sunday, to show its connection to Christ's resurrection, which we celebrate on Sunday, and that happened on a Sunday, right? So, so how do we you know, make sure both of those things kind of happen? And so the Council of Nicaea in 325 determined that Easter would be celebrated, if you want to figure it out yourself, take notes, Easter would be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. <laughs> the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. So what that means is that the date of Easter moves around a lot. But, but and this is, this is not Deacon Matt advocating for astrology or anything like that. I'm just pointing out something cool that God has done. Easter moves around a lot, but Easter always, always occurs Within the time of Aries, the ram, Jesus being the lamb of God, sacrificed for us, right? And I don't think that's a coincidence because who made the stars and the constellations, right? God did. God made the stars and the constellations, right? So, and, and you have to remember also, Jesus is a universal God. So, you know, you have people that are, you know, they're, they're not Jewish people, they're, they're pagans, they're Gentiles, but they're looking to the stars, 
and their religion is based on gazing heavenward, gazing into the stars, and they notice patterns in the constellations, and they say, this one looks like a lamb, this one looks like a ram, right? And God's saying, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice the sacrificial lamb, the eternal lamb, during this period, you know, just as a sign. I think even the heavens proclaim the glory of God. So I think that's cool that, uh, that Easter... <laughs> There's nothing that didn't go through God's head, right? And here's and here tying it, this coming back to where we we are preparing a little bit for Christmas. Um, another bit of liturgical time uh, trivia: um, the original date of Christ's death, the first Good Friday, is thought to have been on March 25th. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Okay. Um, March 25th was understood to be, um, by, by the Jewish people, March 25th was thought to be the first day of creation. It was on a March 25th, according to you know, our calendar. So as early as the second century, there was a tradition that said, well, you know, if, if March 25th is, a, is the first day of creation, then that would be a very fitting um, uh, you know time for Christ's death to have occurred because it inaugurated in a new creation for us, right? So we don't know historically that the first, you know, that the passion occurred on March 25th, but there's this ancient tradition in the church that said it's fitting for the passion to have occurred on March 25th because that was the first day of, of creation according to Jewish tradition, right? So Christians also thought that, well, if Christ died on March 25th, then it must be fitting for him to have been conceived on March 25th. Because again, there's a tradition among the Jewish people that holy people died on the date of their conception. Something about the perfection of their life, right? Their life has achieved perfection, and it was a sign of perfection that they would die on the same day that they were conceived on. So there is an early Christian tradition that Jesus was conceived on March 25th. And what do we celebrate on March 25th? A piece of the Annunciation, right? Um, now, Jesus is a perfect human being, right? And a perfect human being, and I realize there's a pregnant mother in the room, right? A perfect human being gestates for exactly how long? Nine months, right? He's not late. He's not coming early. That Jesus was a perfect baby. And so he was going to be born exactly on his due date. So if he was conceived on March 25th, what's nine months after March 25th? December 25th. So why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? It has nothing to do with like pagan Roman festivals and all of this stuff, right? The reason we celebrate Christmas on December 25th is because we celebrate the Annunciation on March 25th. And since Jesus is a perfect baby, he would, you know. Now, we don't know that Jesus was born on December 25th. But this is when we mark it liturgically. Because what's more important than knowing the actual day of the week or calendar day that he was born on is our are entering into that celebration of it as a church liturgically. Because again, this liturgy brings us outside of time. And so every December 25th, we celebrate his birth because on every March 25th, we celebrate his conception, right? God's entering into time, the author of time entering into time. So I just think that that's cool. There's I just think that that's cool. There's additional thing too that's, that's directly, it's directly, 
And that is, it's something I discovered a number of years ago when I thought I had caught an error in a history book. Uh -huh. It was listing the date of the execution of King Charles I as December, as January 30th. Uh, 1648. Mm -hmm. I said, no, it's not. It's 1649. But at that point, uh, the calendar changed. The change of the year did not begin until March 25th. Oh, because that was the first day of the new yeah. year, because it was the yeah. Annunciation. Interesting. Yeah. So there's all kinds of fascinating connections to be found in the church's um, liturgical calendar, right? And I think knowing these things can kind of add to the richness and the meaning of the celebrations for us. But, of course, we don't need to know all of these different details in order to appreciate the effect that these annual observances have on the rhythm of our lives as, as Christians. Um, and, and I'm going to go back to my main point. Just like in our lives, we will have times of, of joy and sorrow, of desolation and consolation. Um, we observe over the course of each year times of fasting and feasting, times of sorrow and times of joy. And those principal feasts are you know, Easter and Christmas. Those are the biggest times of celebration and joy for us. And each one of them is preceded by a time of penance and preparation, which would be Lent and then Advent that we're preparing for now. And then those times in between, right, that we might correspond to this kind of those everyday times of dryness and maybe blahness, you know, in our lives, um, you know, we call ordinary time, which is not meant to be a time of spiritual dryness, but a time of spiritual growth. And that's why we, we wear green, right, the color of life and growth and renewal, that those seeds that are planted during these other times of the year can kind of germinate a little bit, right? germinate a little bit and take time to, to grow. And, uh, and these times come and go, and this is the thing about the liturgical year, these times come and go whether we want them to or not. The church calls for us to fast, whether we feel like fasting at that time or not. And the church calls us to feast, to celebrate, whether we feel like feasting <laughs> you know, or not. And, and that's... And it, I'm, I'm, a conversation comes to mind that I had with a priest once about the Liturgy of the Hours. And he was sharing with me why he really appreciates praying the Liturgy of the Hours every day. And I'm assuming, for those of you who don't know the Liturgy of the Hours, it's that daily ongoing prayer of the church that uh, chiefly revolves around the Psalms. Right? You, you pray through the Psalms on, on the way it's arranged now, a, a four-week cycle. And he remarked that what he appreciated most about it is that there are times when we as a church are praying with, let's say, a sorrowful psalm, a sorrowful psalm of, of just anguish, expressing our anguish to God. But maybe we're not feeling that right now. Maybe we're feeling pretty happy. Maybe things are going well for, our, for us in our lives. But you know what? There's somebody in the church somewhere that's suffering. And we can pray in solidarity with them, with these psalms. And then likewise, maybe we're experiencing a real dark period in our lives, and the church is asking us to pray these joyful psalms of celebration. There's somebody that's rejoicing in the church. And even when we're in the midst of our sorrow, we can still rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And so praying for him, just the liturgy of the hours, called him out of himself and made him more mindful of this universal experience of the church and his call to be in solidarity with those who are suffering and with those who are rejoicing, right? That it's not just about him, it's about the body of Christ. And, you know, 
I've experienced something like that my, myself. I think a few of you know that um, four or five years ago, we lost a nephew in my family. And it happened the week before Easter. He was 11 years old. And, you know, he wasn't sick or anything. It was an accident. It was just tragic. And it took the whole family by surprise. And, you know, as you can imagine, it was just a horrible period of grief for us. But it happened right before Easter. And in fact, that year I missed the Holy Thursday and Good Friday liturgies here because we were on the road traveling to, you know, for his funeral. But I was back here for Easter Sunday and it was my job to sing the Exultet, which is that really joyful, triumphant chant that we sing at the Easter liturgy. And so we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And as you can imagine, you know, my heart was broken because I was experiencing this profound grief and yet... It was my role to stand up before the congregation and proclaim, be glad. Let earth be glad as glory floods her, ablaze with light from her eternal king. Let all corners of the earth be glad, knowing an end to gloom and darkness. Rejoice. Let Mother Church also rejoice, arrayed with the lightning of his glory. Let this holy building shake with joy filled with the mighty voices of the peoples. Isn't it beautiful? And you might think that my heart wasn't in it because of what was going on in my life at the time. But in a way, that was like the most meaningful proclamation of the exultet that I've ever experienced because I knew in that moment that the liturgical celebration wasn't about how I was feeling. And it wasn't about how anybody else was feeling. It was about the risen Christ, which is a reality that's much bigger than what's going on in any of our lives at the moment. It doesn't matter if we were happy or if we were sad or if things were going well for us or things were not going well for us. The Son of God has entered into the world. He's died for our sins and he's risen from the dead and he draws us up into heaven with him. And regardless of the, the realities of my particular time in life, right, I'm able to rejoice in that. And I'm able to invite other people to rejoice in that. Even though I wasn't feeling joyful at the time, personally, I was able to, in a way, command my soul to rejoice at the glory of the resurrection as I was singing those words, right? And because I've lived through this liturgical cycle of the church and I've experienced it and I've learned from it, I knew then and I know now that after every Lent, there's an Easter, after every Advent, there's a Christmas, right? And so at that time, even though the church may have been celebrating Easter, like I was experiencing Lent. And I would probably say that whole year after that, I was in Lent. I was stuck in Lent <laughs> for a while, you know. But then there came an Easter. There did. There came an Easter for us. And I remember when that Easter did come, it was uh, a year later when my wife and I had Jasper, our youngest you know, baby. And I remember feeling that because he was born in March and his birthday was right before Easter. It was, in the, it was uh, the first Sunday after we brought him home from the hospital was Leitare Sunday. And I remember uh, getting ready for Leitare Sunday and the entrance antiphon for the mass at Leitare Sunday is rejoice Jerusalem. Rejoice Jerusalem, right? Be glad for her, those who love her. Rejoice with her, those who mourn for her. And you will find contentment at her consoling breasts. And I was singing that entrance antiphon. And I was thinking, yeah, I am like, I finally, I finally feel like Lent is over <laughs> after a full year, right? Because now I'm rejoicing. But just these tie-ins of the moments of sor sorrow and the moments of joy in our lives 
with the moments of sorrow and joy that the church calls us to experience on an annual cycle and even in miniature on a weekly cycle in, in her liturgies, right? The liturgical year is kind of a, a microcosm of, of the life of Christ, which included periods of sorrow and joy, right? Of death and resurrection. And, and it's also a microcosm of our own lives as we experience times of sorrow and joy and times of death and times of resurrection, right? And that, that cycle of death and resurrection, sorrow and joy in our lives, is given meaning by the way that it ties into the sorrow and joy, the death and resurrection of Christ that we experience in the liturgy, right? So, with that in mind, as we approach the end of a liturgical year, what is the church asking us to focus on now? And that is, that is just the end of time, right? As this time of the year ends, be mindful, too, that our time is coming to an end. And so our readings and everything are, are calling to mind the end of time writ large, right? Um, and we don't know when that's going to be. Even Jesus says, I don't know when that's going to be. Only my Father in heaven knows when that's going to be. But it's going to be for us sooner or later. What does the psalm say? That each of us is allotted, you know, 60 or 70 years, 80 for those who are strong, right? And some people are on borrowed time <laughs> after that, right? But sooner or later, all of us will reach the end of our time, and then we pass into eternity, which is not, as some people conceive of it, just a long, long time, right? We think of eternity as just this time that goes on forever, but it's not. It's outside of time. It's outside of time. And um, one way of defining time, and I'll close with this thought, and then if people have questions or comments, we can, we can talk. One way of thinking about time is change. How do we mark time, right? Time, we mark time by, by noting change. So in eternity, there is no change. In eternity, we will be as we are. And so you can think of our time here, in, and this is, this is why some people say, well, how come the angels can't repent? How come the fallen angels can't repent? Or how come you can't repent when you're in hell? Don't you think that if you died and went to hell, you would look around and go, well, I made some bad decisions in life. I'm going I'm, <laughs> I'm to repent, right? Why can't you repent? You can repent now. Why can't you repent in hell? Because you're in eternity and you are incapable of change. You will be for eternity who you are making yourself to be now, right? So Advent, as we approach Advent and that final coming of Christ at the end of time, we should take advantage of this invitation that the church gives us to think about how we're spending our time now and maybe some changes that we need to make in our life to prepare us for the end, not necessarily of time writ large, but the end of our own time and the end of our own days. So uh, we're going to close in prayer. Sister Margarita can, can leave. You're not going to leave without a blessing and a prayer. And uh, we don't want you to get in an accident on the road and not, not have been blessed. Um, and then whoever wants to say, we can, we can take questions and things. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, the, the author of, of time and seasons, we are so grateful for the time that you have given us in this life to, to learn about you, to learn how to love you and how to serve you. We ask for the grace that we use the time allotted to us wisely to 
live our lives in such a way that we are drawn ever closer to you so that we may reign with you outside of time for all eternity, sharing in your glory. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace, guys. I don't have too much time left because I'm 90 now. You remember.